And I appreciate that, but what had happened was so antithetical to everything that we believed in. And coming um, to, to share the sorrow of the death, it's just who we are as human beings. And, and I think you folk would have done it if something had happened the other way around. Yes, it's, I think right. It's just what one does in the case of sorrows like that. I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, I sit down with filmmakers Josh Sabe and Sarah Perkins, who directed The Abortion Talks, and we're joined by Reverend Ann Fowler and attorney Fran Hogan, two women on opposite sides of the abortion debate who met secretly for six years with four other women to find common ground and ways to work together in the wake of the 1994 abortion clinic shootings in Boston that killed two people and injured five. Stay with us. This season, I'm doing something a little different to mix up our format. I'll still share stories from past-facing projects to shine a light on specific topics and issues, but also I'll sit down for long-form interviews with best-selling authors, filmmakers, and other artists who are using their platforms to make the world a more understanding and empathetic place. Asking each of them, how do we create a more empathetic world in a time when listening has decreased and each person's message is competing with millions of others? Today's guests are filmmakers Josh Sabe and Sarah Perkins, who directed the film The Abortion Talks, and two individuals profiled in the film, Reverend Ann Fowler and attorney Fran Hogan. The Abortion Talks follows the lives of six women in Boston, including Ann and Fran, who were community leaders and advocates on opposite sides of the abortion issue, who agreed to sit down together to have talks about civil discourse and working together in the wake of the December 30th, 1994 shootings at two abortion clinics in Boston that claimed the lives of two individuals and wounded five others. This isn't a story about the shooter John Salvi, but rather a story of courage and the six women who said, we're bigger than what divides us. Of course, it wasn't quite that easy. The women agreed to four secret meetings held in the basement of a house, but their dialogues turned into six years of meetings and a shell-shocking letter they crafted together that was published by the Boston Globe in 2001, titled Talking with the Enemy. But the letter did something else than shock. It actually brought people together with vastly different beliefs to start talking about issues that divide them. Over 20 years later, Josh Sabe and Sarah Perkins sat down with the women to recapture the abortion talks and to learn what it was beyond their differences that brought these women together to have civil dialogues and ultimately close friendships. We consider abortion a violent act. It destroys a human life. People feel strongly when they think innocent human beings are being killed, and then people feel strongly when they feel they're being condemned for doing something. You know, if you're telling someone that what they're doing is against the natural law, right, and it's morally wrong, they're going to take umbrage at that, right? I mean, but that's what you have to do to try to convince them that th this is really not a good thing to do. The protests were getting more violent. And the rhetoric was pretty high on both sides. We did a walk for life through the streets of Boston and horrible things were screamed at us as we walked through the streets. That very harsh rhetoric that was playing out literally on the streets, it became very worrisome. It was intense. It felt 
kind of like a powder keg. So something, something had to give. There had been a 10-year period of some pretty serious attacks on abortion clinics, culminated in the worst one the country's ever had. We shouldn't have been totally surprised that something could happen, that another passionate, crazy person would show up in Boston and kill people. If people hadn't been killed, this conversation we're talking about wouldn't have happened. I don't think the pro-life women would have agreed to meet with us at all if it were not for that tragedy, for which I think they felt some guilt. You know, no matter what disagreements we had, we were very connected. We were bound to one another forever by the events of December 30, 1994. I want to welcome to the show the directors of the Abortion Talks film, Josh Sabe and Sarah Perkins, and two individuals profiled in the film, Reverend Ann Fowler and attorney Fran Hogan. Thanks, Thanks for having for us. Glad to be here. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you for, for joining me on the show. Anna and Fran, take us back to 1994, right after the shootings happened. The clip we just played highlighted the climate in Boston between pro-life and pro-choice advocates. But the two of you, along with four other women who are also leaders on either side of the debate, decided the conversation needed to take a shift. Take us to that moment. I would say that that moment did not happen at the time of the shootings. It did not happen for a few months later. The day of the shootings, which was the day before New Year's Eve, those of us within the pro-life community were shocked and appalled by what had happened because it was antithetical to everything that we believed in. So on that day, um, the people within the pro-life community gathered at the residence of Cardinal Law because he wanted to get the message out condemning this action through the um, to all of the parishes of the Archdiocese of Boston, of which there were hundreds. And he did not want it to go through the prism of the media, which we felt from the pro-life perspective, sometime was not honest or complete. So we gathered at his residence and we got people to go to all the parishes. But that night as well was the first time that I wound up on a TV show with Nikki Nichols Gamble, one of the three pro-choice women. And we met that night and we were on the show together discussing these issues. And it was an extremely difficult time because Nikki knew these people personally. And and I had never met her in person before. So at that point, we didn't know we were going to have the conversations. Had we had them ahead of time, I think that day would have been completely different. But from my perspective, it was a few months later before um, we got facilitators who decided to try to put us together. Um, Anne may have a different perspective on that. Well, the, the, ev the evening of that shooting, I found out one of my parishioners called, I, I have a parish in Jamaica Plain right next to Brookline, and a parishioner just called me in tears and told me about the shooting. So we had, there was a vigil that happened uh, outside the clinic, one of the clinics, and there were speakers and prayers and candles and Everybody was just devastated. And then uh, time went by, as France said, uh, the Cardinal and then uh, Governor Wells had asked for a lowering of the rhetoric. So the Public Conversations Project, which had been doing dialogues on difficult subjects, mostly abortion, I think, for several years, and I had participated in uh, 
a number of those. And and so uh, when they started, when when the public conversations people started looking for uh, participants in this long term project, I think I was uh, somebody who came to mind and I was uh, a representative of, of a faith community and um, brought that perspective. Mm hmm. At that time, after the shooting, the dial, I mean, had been turned up and both of you were on opposite ends of the spectrum regarding your viewpoints on abortion. How challenging was it in the wake of that shooting to sit down together and begin conversations in a different way? It was extraordinarily difficult, I think. And, you know, we had never done anything like this before ever and never even thought about doing it. And to a certain extent, I think both sides perhaps demonized is too strong a word, but looked not in a positive manner on people on the other side. So it was extremely difficult. Ian spoke about the um, the uh, dialogues that had occurred before this one. I had never participated in any of those, neither had the other two pro-life women, because we were concerned that people would think we thought abortion was just an issue on which reasonable people could differ. So we had not participated. So it took a while for us to agree to do this. Mm -hmm. And from watching the film, you were afraid to be seen in public together. And you ended up meeting in a basement in Boston to begin these conversations. Talk th through that process of consensus of, of, of meeting in a basement. And what were your fears about being seen in public together? Well, I had no fears. I, <laughs> I had no, I'm, I'm a fairly fearless person and I had nothing to lose. I, you know, I was active pro, I was a pro-choice activist in the Episcopal diocese. Uh, and I had, you know, I had some strenuous disagreements with people there, but uh, I didn't have a constituency in the same way that the leaders of these various pro-life organizations had. So I didn't, I, uh, I had nothing to lose and I believed in the process. And uh, so it was an easy yes for me. Mm -hmm. Fran, how it about was you? Not a, no, it was not an easy yes. And I really, really didn't, wasn't sure it was the right thing to do. It wasn't about any personal fear, anything like that. There was a concern about how it would be read within the wider pro-life community, um, that we respected the position the pro-choice position, which we did not, mm. or that we were seeking to have common ground and to kind of compromise on abortion, which we were not. And so we, I think all three of us from the pro-life perspective would not meet unless it was completely confidential and would never go public unless we all three of us agreed to it. I, I think Ian is correct. That was the impression I had from the pro-choice folk, that they were okay with it for the most part. I think we were the ones who were more hesitant about it. Mm -hmm. Take me to that first meeting in the basement. Did you all park blocks away? Uh, time you're walking into the to the the basement. How did you make sure that no one could see you together? <laughs> well, I think it was not it was not difficult. I mean, we we all we arrived individually. We left after dark and. Um, it, it was in a fairly obscure part of Watertown, so we, there was not any foot traffic or anything like that. So um, 
wasn't, I don't think it was an issue. Mm -hmm. What about Fran? Well, we, (laughs) the three of us, uh, the pro-life women, we decided that we would meet before the meeting at a nearby ice cream shop, Friendly's. And we wanted to get together to pray about the meeting and to work up our courage. So uh, we gave it a tremendous amount of thought and prayer and concern um, before we went that day. Uh, well, when we walked into the meeting, I think we were all a little bit nervous because, I mean, certainly Nikki Nichols Gamble was a very important icon of the pro-choice movement and well-known throughout the country. And to sit down at the same table with Nikki and the head of NARAL and Ian, it was really kind of scary to us, or to me anyway. Mm-hmm. I got that from the film that um, that Nikki Nichols Gamble was someone, at least for the pro-life people, who you never, ever would have imagined sitting down with. But we saw the shift in the film among all of you. Um, and word choice is one of the most powerful ways during a debate, because you could have debated, right? You could have gone to the basement and had a debate, but you were intentional about it being a dialogue among women on either side of the issue. And word choice can incite uh, agreement or it can incite anger. But you all went through a process. One of your goals for the secret talks was to create a dialogue and not a debate. And you had to come to consensus on word choice and to use certain words in your meetings. Ultimately, you decided on 150 words that could not be used during your dialogues. Tell me more about this process. How hard was it to come to consensus? It was it was uh, <laughs> it was one of the most difficult parts of the initial meetings, I would say. Um, we, I think the agreement was pretty much if somebody said this word is off the table, then it was off the table. But some of the, some of the pr- proposals for alternatives were not acceptable either. So uh, it, it took a, a good while. I think, I don't know if we did it all in one meeting, Fran, do you remember? I don't remember. I just remember it became almost impossible to carry on a conversation because we, we couldn't use our normal words. No. <laughs> and so it got a little hard to communicate. But, you know, for to show the differences, we would say an unborn child or an unborn baby, and our friends wouldn't agree to that. And so we came up with this use of the expression human fetus, which I don't think either side was happy with, but we we needed to use some term for that. So we did come up with that. But I think you're right, and I think it might have taken a couple of meetings. And then we would slip up every once in a while and say the wrong thing. And the problem is we had a vocabulary that you used and we couldn't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. Some of the words I think that were put up, I, we put them all up on sheets on the walls. Each side put up some words that the people that were there never used. Like, for example, one of the expressions that our pro-choice friends didn't want us to use was baby killer. We never used that expression. Other people may have. And there were expressions that they said that we thought they used that they didn't either. So we put all the things up that, you know, people may have heard others say whether or not we had ever said them. Mm -hmm. Knowing in that meeting that there were words neither party had ever used, but you had assumed the other side of right, the issue, did use these words. Was that almost an opening in some ways to say we can have these conversations? Well, I, I want to go back a minute. You said we could have decided to to debate. We couldn't have decided to debate. That's right. Um, that was not an option. Um, and I often said that those meetings 
particularly the first couple of years were the the earliest I would the best I would ever the closest I would ever come to know what it was like in the early church when Jews and Christians were gathered together in a basement room eating breaking bread together and trying to figure out what could keep them together and for the in their case it was worship in our case at me a meal and worship in our case it was the uh facilitators i mean without them we would have been nowhere ever mm-hmm. ever so they really kept us on track mm-hmm. and sometimes we were uncontainable but mostly we we were okay i think right were there moments during those initial meetings where either of you felt i don't want to come back oh there were a lot of those moments <laughs> i think <laughs> tell me more i do i think you know part of it was what are we achieving here i mean most of us were volunteers this was all a volunteer movement for us and it was taking time for me out of my professional life as an attorney and i'm saying what what's the purpose of this where is this going is it going anywhere we're not going to agree on the end result or anything else so but for whatever reason, just as we'd get to the end of a series of meetings, we would agree to continue them again. So there was some spark there. It's hard to identify. It was a mystery to think to all of us why we did it. But but we did do it and we did become friends. It's mm-hmm. just wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Do you think the talks would have failed had you not taken the time to deep dive into language? In an answer, yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's an easy one. <laughs> How did that process and having to restrict language in some ways or change your own vocabulary, how has that process stayed with you and shifted language that you use today? I'll tell you, that process has informed my conversation, not just on this ethic, but in many other areas of my life, even as you look at the political discourse in the country today. And I work in a law firm with partners whom we probably don't agree on what day of the week it is, but we can work well together. But I've learned that in talking with them, the words are so important if you're seeking understanding that I try not to use hot button words, whether it be within the abortion debate or whether it be on political things that are happening right now in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I was not constrained by being the chairman of a board, chairperson of a board. So uh i had not had to practice in the same way being careful with my language uh i tend to be a pretty um blunt and sometimes salty person so <laughs> i <laughs> uh i think of it when uh, as fran said when i look at the absolute abyss in this country right now and wish I wish everybody could participate in a process mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Thinking about other hot topic debates happening in our country right now, and I think about moments when people are face-to-face, and that's a different way that you react in a moment, right? If somebody says something that incites you, um, or on social media, right? People, it's easy to hide behind a keyboard and just say some really outrageous things online, what advice would you have for people in a moment, right? In a flash of a moment when they're online and they see something or they're in person and someone says something to them, how do they, in some ways, I guess, monitor their language 
or practice patience and discussion? I always say count for 10 seconds before you respond to anything and consider or not whether or not your mother would be embarrassed to hear you say it. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought of that one. (laughs) I taught my mother most of her swear words. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, I I don't follow social media very much. I, I, I feel innocent and happy to be innocent in that regard. Mm. I don't think it helps. I don't think much of it helps. Well, it stirs the people. Um, I get emails every single day from all different perspectives. And you want to respond to every one of them. But you have to be careful what you do and what you say. Mm. As I say, I'm involved with different organizations, which I don't want anyone to think that I'm speaking for them. That's why I'm so cautious. When, When I speak, I speak only for myself and not for the other places where I'm involved. Mm-hmm. So that's, I try to be very careful in a public environment. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to your meetings again, just for a uh, moment. So in the film, you talked about how you all agreed on four meetings, right? In the beginning, but four turned into five, that turned into six, that turned into seven, that turned into years of meeting. Mm-hmm. And I imagine some of that is right. Coming to consensus norming, storming, forming, right? As people often say, and there were tense moments, but what at, at what point did you realize that this was going to be ongoing and something you were all committed to, to seeing through for years? I think I would say, Fran may have a different perspective. I think when it was, when we decided that what we were doing was so important that we had to, as we called it, take it out of the room. Mm-hmm. And we realized that it was going to be a big project to figure out how to do that. And we went through all kinds of ideas like planting a tree. I mean, you know, things that really wouldn't have done the trick. It might it might have made us feel good, but it wouldn't have gotten the message out. So then we had to spend, I think, several years getting a statement that we could all agree on. And um, and that was, you know, that was <laughs> another that was probably the most painful, I think, part of the whole thing. After the first couple of meetings, you know, it just was... Mm-hmm. It was extremely difficult to write that document. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And was that due to language, due to coming to consensus? Tell me more. I think language was a big part of it. But I also think it sounds dumb to say this, but I think it took at least it took me two or three years to realize that we were coming from completely different worldviews. And part of writing that um, article involved setting forth separately the two worldviews that we had. And you think we would have realized that from day one? I did not. I thought that we had some basic agreement on some of these very serious matters, but we did not. And then I understood what informed the other side. So I think that was a very rich happening. And it also required, I think, each one of us to dig deeply into what we believe and why we believe it and why we are willing to um, fight for what it is that we do believe. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, and creating the worldview was was another event. Well, it was not an event for you guys. I mean, you decided we have to do this. You insisted that we write our worldviews and you write yours in about five minutes because you <laughs> all you all shared the exact same worldview. But but um, the three of us were, you know, there's I'm an Episcopal priest. There's a, a 
so the other two, a non-practicing Jew, a sort of non-practicing sort of Methodist. Uh, and, you know, we we were coming at the question of uh, or what was a worldview? What could we share? I mean, what were the things that we could find in common to say this is this is our worldview? And it took, you know, we were pro-choice. She could choose all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was a big, a big part of it, you know, trying to figure it out. But it took us years to figure that all out. That's what's amazing to me. Yeah. Six, Seems so six years, now. right? Six. Yeah, right. Yeah. Did any viewpoints change or alter in any way regarding your stance on abortion through these talks? No, we <laughs> we got more convicted of what we believe because we had to articulate it. Mm-hmm. Uh And we, it is a rare chance, it's a very precious opportunity to sit with people with whom you disagree and talk only about the thing that you disagree about. And it's it's a great gift. It was a great gift to me, and I think it was to everybody. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. We did dig deeply and even more, I think, acutely understood why we believed what we believed and why we were willing to speak about it. Um, it was very enriching, I think. And and I very much appreciated hearing why the pro-choice women believed what they believed. And, and I don't think anybody changed one iota. And, no. and the truth was that at the very beginning, we all knew we weren't going to change. We were each convicted of our position. And there was not supposed to be any effort to make anybody change. You kept hoping, Fran, that you were going to change us. Well, I did. You know, one of the things they asked us to do at the beginning was agree that we wouldn't try to proselytize or change anybody's position. I did agree to it, but I I honestly (laughs) had hoped and hoped and hoped that, in my view, the truth has a beauty all its own and it would would touch my my friends. (laughs) But I understood completely that was unlikely to happen. Mm -hmm. And... You all did become friends, despite the fact that you didn't change your personal stance or viewpoints on abortion. You all did become friends. And there's a moment in the film where you talk about sometimes your conversations during those six years weren't just about abortion. You talked about HR issues in your own organizations, about working with staff, about, um, uh, you know, other other things in your lives. Uh, how critical were these non-abortion talks in cementing your friendships and ultimately your work together? Well, I think they were they were profoundly important. And at one moment, I I know we talk about this in the film, but we had a year after the shootings, we had a uh, memorial service for the women who had been killed, and. I was presiding at it was a, a big temple in Brookline and there were, I don't know, 700 people there it was huge. And as I was standing on the on the dais, um, I saw Barbara and Fran walk in and I thought, what courage and what compassion to have them come into this, you know, you know, a, a whole horde of people that they didn't agree with and stick it out. And that that meant a whole lot to me and I think to all of us. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. But what had happened was so antithetical to everything that we believed in and coming um, to, to share the sorrow of the death. It's just who we are as human beings. And, and I think you folk would have done it if something had happened the other way around. Yes, it's, I think it's right. just what one does in the case of sorrows like that. Mm -hmm. 
It, I found yeah. it to be an especially moving part of the film because we are living during a time where it feels like the dial has been turned up on so many issues and people aren't willing to do the work that you all went through. So seeing that in the film was a, a great reminder to me and hopefully others who see it that we can have those moments. And there are moments in life where we do need to support one another, regardless if we don't always agree with everything. I want to go back to taking it out of the room, which was mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, after you decided to take it out of the room and the, the public letter that we had talked about that took six years to work through, it was published by the Boston Globe. And I know there was some language again that you had to go back and forth and the Globe wanted you to change some language. And you all said, no, mm -hmm. this is the language we're sticking with. And they said, OK, and they write published the letter. What happened after this became public? We had a press conference and we thought we'd be talking to the local papers. The place was positively mob standing room only. I, I was shocked at the interest in this story. It led all the news media's, media that night. It even reached a national level. And um, everybody was just totally shocked that it, you know, we had no idea of the impact it would have. And as a result of that, this is purely from the pro-life perspective. We were invited to places over the next few years where we would never have had a place at the table had it not been for this event. And I think that, so I think that the pro-life perspective actually gained something from this. And that was a seat at the table in every place from the Neiman Foundation at Harvard to, to just all kinds of different opportunities. But it was way bigger than I think we had ever anticipated. I think Ian would think the same way. It was. And, and, and some of the some of the people at that press conference were in tears and they said, you know, we don't get to report on on good luck story, you know, good outcome stories. Uh, they they were just very moved. And I, that, I think, was an unusual event for everybody, you know, mm -hmm. it was. And, and we did. We we all got many opportunities to speak and and. What we spoke about was the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We didn't do many conversations. We t we we were proselytizing in a sense. Mm -hmm. one, one funny experience that we shared was we went to an event in Rhinebeck, New York. I'm sure you know <laughs> this. We, it was it was completely full of women whom I think you would call pro-choice. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, and among the people attending were Jane Fonda. Eve Ensler of the Vagina Monologues, and Sally Field, who was a kid I knew was the Flying Nun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, we, we're there on the stage, the three of us, the six of us. But afterwards, Sally Field came up to me, and she said to me, I have to tell you, I have never heard that perspective in Hollywood. She told me she had been educated in Hollywood, and just the words, she'd never heard them before. And to me, that was very telling. As I say, it was a chance for the at least... The conversation to start. I mean, I did say to her, "You out. You were the flying nun. You think this would have <laughs> infused in your brain?" Yeah. But it, it was just a wild event, and, and, and Nan is going to tell you what we did with the holy water, right, Ann? <laughs> <laughs> what did we do with the holy water? Well, Barbara Thorpe, one of the pro-life women, brought a bottle of holy water with it when we sprinkled it all over the all over the ground up there <laughs> in oh. Rhinebeck, New York. Yeah, it was it was not only a group of pro-life people, it was a group of woo-woo-y people. I mean, they mm. this was pro-choice people in, I think. Pro-choice. Pro-choice, woo-woo yeah. people. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. 
And then these three came in all dressed in suits and wearing nylons and everybody else was like rainbow tie dyed, whatever. And uh, <laughs> like once again, they were like in a foreign land, but they they was great their ground. That's yeah, we, we really did enjoy it. It was a wonderful experience. It really was. Yeah, it was. But yeah. It takes a ton of courage to do that. So, you know, I commend both of you for that. I want to take it a little closer to home. How did your friend groups respond? Those who knew you as the staunch advocates for your side and did not know that you were having these secret meetings for six years. How did they respond? Not everybody was positive <laughs> within the pro-life community. Some people felt that a, a small minority, I would say, that we had betrayed the pro-life ethic by acting like that people could, there could be another position on this issue. But for the most part, I think people were pleased because, as I say, we got a seat at a table where we would never otherwise have been. Mm -hmm. I don't know within the pro-choice community, and if there was that kind of a reaction. I, I, all the, the reaction that I got was, I can't believe that you have the patience to do this. And I'm not a very patient person, as Fran knows all too well. But, I mean, people were incredulous. They were admiring. You know, they they thought this was something that not a lot of people would be willing to do. Yeah. And I think they were proud of me. Mm -hmm. yeah, people had been wondering where I'd been when I was just disappearing for hours on end. No one knew where I was <laughs> when they thought I worked I for the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was such an enriching experience, the whole thing. Yeah. And it stuck with us. I mean, this has been coming up on almost 30 years ago since this shooting happened. Yeah. There's a moment in the film after your friendship really had been cemented where you all share a dessert together in a restaurant. And I want to play that clip real quickly for our listeners. On a few occasions, we would go out to a restaurant. You know, there's always that moment when the waiter or waitress comes over and says, so, does anybody want dessert? And everybody wants dessert, but nobody wants to admit they want dessert. <laughs> and somehow a dessert gets ordered and the waiter brings this dessert and a bunch of spoons. And I can remember as each of us were taking a taste of that dessert, that this is remarkable. You know, that we could partake of the sweetness of this dessert like people do and not think anything of it. You know, it was a moment that I really remember as being kind of like, this is, this is good. That's such a great scene that just really shows the human condition in its fullest form. What did you learn about yourselves after going through this process and having the shared history? We all like dessert. <laughs> what did you have for dessert that day? Who Do you knows? remember? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I, it was like a metaphor for the whole event uh -huh. that we could come together and we could, whether you liked the dessert or you didn't like the dessert, you stuck it out, you were together, you tried to work it out. I, I think I learned that I can get along with people with whom I fundamentally disagree, which is good because that's probably half my own family. Mm -hmm. And you learned a way to talk about it, you know, and to, and to, and to break bread together and, and not have it be a thing that everybody shut up and no one would talk about. So I, I think it taught a great lesson in that respect. Do you ever look back at pre-1994 and wish these talks would have started sooner? 
I don't think it would made one bit of a difference because John Salvi was not part of the pro-life community. I feel no guilt for John Salvi. He was in what he did. We are completely opposed to violence and and his was the most violent of actions. So I even think afterward, you can't stop some crazy person from doing some crazy thing. I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been good to have the conversations, but would have prevented this from happening. I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know. I don't think so uh, because he's crazy. He was crazy. But I and I think that it would have been even more devastating had we had. I don't know. I mean, maybe it would have been maybe we would have been able to comfort each other. Um, But it may it might have just it might have just driven us right apart. You know, I don't know how how we could have survived Mm -hmm. uh, that. I'd like to think we could have, but it would have been very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, one one anecdote from the night of the shooting when I went to, I forget, Channel 5, I think it was, and Nikki was there and they were interviewing a pro-life and a pro-choice person. And we sat in the green room together and she was there with her husband. And I did not get up and go over and give her a hug and tell her how sorry I was. I did nothing. I was frozen in my seat. Had that happened later, it, it, I would have been my real authentic self. I would have go- given her a hug, told her how sorry I was. Mm-hmm. And later... I think it was when I think it was when I was in Rome, I served on a pontifical commission in Rome and she was going to Rome and she said, you know, if you see me, you don't have to say hello to me. Mm-hmm. So people and I thought, you you got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm going to say hello to her. And and I thought back to that night in the green room when I when I failed myself as a human person, I think, you know, so mm-hmm. it made me think that through. Mm-hmm. But she was willing for me not to recognize her which really was quite extraordinary, I think. Maybe she didn't want to recognize you, Fran. <laughs> That's entirely possible. <laughs> but Nikki, who is, I say, that was the most well-known of the whole group, uh, it turned out to be just wonderful. We, we really loved Nikki. She was funny. She was smart. She was honest. Um, was, when we met, we one time we got invited to, a, I think, a coffee or a tea at Cardinal Law's residence after it went public. And Nikki said to me, do you think the ceiling will fall in when I walk in? I said, I don't think so. But his mother had been a Methodist, Cardinal Law's mother. Mm. And so he went around the table and he gave each of the participants a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I'm like rolling my eyes thinking this is not going to play out well. But when he got to Nikki, he said, you know, his mother had been a Methodist or whatever it was. And he said, I know you probably don't agree with everything in this book. I wanted to say, no kidding. But he said, we're all called to prayer. Why don't you just read the section on prayer? And I think Nikki appreciated that, you know. So we we had that crazy gathering. I mean, we're in Rhinebeck with Jane Fonda, and now we're in the Cardinal's residence. <laughs> Whoever would have thought this was going to happen? All things you never imagined, right? I think we were at the Cardinal residence first, and so that gave you all the courage and strength. That could be weirdness in mm-hmm. Rhinebeck. Right. How how often do you all get together or see each other today? Not very often. Have we seen each other within the last year? We were. We went to whose house did we go to? Nikki's house, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Sarah's shaking her head. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, we had a lovely dinner at Nikki's house. Not as much as we had before, that's for sure. 
Mm-hmm. But um, Nikki lost her husband during this. Barbara Thorpe lost her husband. So there were tremendous personal losses while this was happening. Mm-hmm. And your brother tried died. to be there for each other. And your brother died. My brother died. Madeline's husband died. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, friendships often do span geography and they're all friendships, right? You go months sometimes without speaking. I know I, right. my own personal life too, but there's still that camaraderie among all of you or... Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think when we get together, it's like there's been no time at all. We just start right in again. Mm -hmm. And of course, after Roe went over, (laughs) you know, we had been through so many, uh, I would say, pro-choice victories that when we had a pro-life victory, it felt so different. It Mm -hmm. it was it was very different. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you all connect with each other after that moment? How did that conversation go? I think we had the dinner at Nikki's after that, if I'm not mistaken, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly we all had our own position, our own positions. <laughs> same as same as always, you know. Yeah. Can I butt in here for a second? Yes. Okay. So just uh so we actually watched uh so this was the first time that all six of seven of the women, including uh Susan, the moderator, uh, had a chance to see the the full work oh, you know, that's documentary. Right. And so we actually had gathered to watch, sort of to finish watching it. Um, and this was the week after the Dobbs decision. So the Dobbs mm. decision had just come down when we watched uh, this documentary together at Nikki's apartment. Um, and yeah, so that was the setting. And it was such a, we weren't sure what to expect because like the dynamics that had sort of undergirded this whole you know, conversation suddenly switched, right? It was like the polls had just switched, right? And it was like, what's going to happen here? Yeah, just a moment that really touched me. And if, Fran, if you're not comfortable with this afterwards, we can cut it. Uh, but just a moment that really, that I was really moving to me is I remember Fran coming in and giving Nikki a hug. And I think it was like the first or second thing you said to Nikki was, we understand this is not a moment for us to be exultant. Mm-hmm you must be hurting. Uh, and right. we, we understand that. Um, and I thought that was such a beautiful real, uh, moment of just recognizing the importance of the relationship here rather than touting yeah. a victory or something. I think that was part of my understanding of what it means to be a human person and be compassionate that I had failed at the very beginning. But I had this was not a moment of exaltation whatsoever. And I completely understood how uh, pro-choice friends felt not that i did share the decision mm-hmm. but i but i did understand the sense of loss because we've been through it so many times ourselves and and you said to me just remember this was us 20 years ago mm. right that's right mm-hmm. that's right yeah 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 so this was a week after the Dobbs decision the conversation you did talk about abortion though Right. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm I'm curious to know, how were you feeling in that moment among your friends? I mean, that would be a weird juxtaposition in some ways, feeling supported, but at the same time, feeling heartbroken and on an opposite side. Could you talk a bit about that? I don't recall. Maybe I have therapeutic amnesia, but I don't recall feeling anything but glad to be with people who would understand how we were feeling mm-hmm. across they would understand across this great divide of 
of philosophies and and would comfort us, which they did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten it was right after Job's decision. I forgot that. I just remembered the food and the dinner. <laughs> <laughs> that's Fran every time. No, that's me, right, right. <laughs> Josh and Sarah, I want to turn it back to the two of you for a moment as the filmmakers. Why was this story important for you to tell? I think as you referenced, uh, you know, it felt to us like uh, this was a major issue in this country, right? Polarization was getting worse. It, it, within the film, some experts uh, refer to it as, you know, a, a first order issue because it, it impacts everything else, right? Our ability to solve any of our major issues is hampered by polarization, right? And, and so polarization gets into everything. Uh, it's like, a, like the dog, right? It's like, <laughs> it just gets everywhere. And so we felt like this is a film that needed to be made, but we didn't really know how to approach it because we didn't want to make a movie that, you know, would just be watched by, you know, raver angels or, you know, like organizations that are already really invested in, Mm -hmm. in this cause, like like polarization. Uh, We wanted to make a, a movie that would have broad appeal that your average person could watch. And it wouldn't just be a, you know, a, an information piece or a news piece. I want it to be something really compelling. Lots of human stories and dynamic characters and intrigue and all that. And so we were looking for stories. And my brother actually emailed me uh, an article published in the Boston Globe in 2001. It's called Talking with the Enemy, I think is what it was called. And mm-hmm. it was actually the article that these six women had co-authored. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was living in Boston at the time. Uh, with Sarah, we, we we were there. She was getting her PhD at Brandeis, and I was following her. <laughs> so we we were there, and I was like, "Well, I should reach out and make this movie. I think uh, I think this could be a real powerful story that people would want to see." Um, wasn't entirely sure, but it was like I think. <laughs> and then when we met them, and you kind of get their personalities, like this is dynamite. Like these are awesome people. They have such rich. Uh, they were rich personalities, intelligent speakers, well thought. And I was like, this is amazing. And so we were pretty positive pretty quickly that this was going to be, you know, just a really important movie to make. Yeah. And I would just add, um, you know, I think like most people now, uh, we felt the effects of polarization on a national level and on a personal level as well. You know, we'd seen family members turning on, turn on each other on social media. We had seen people at university settings, self-censoring, like intelligent opinions. We had seen people in religious settings turning away or not coming anymore because they felt like their perspectives weren't welcome. Uh, And so it just seemed so clear that we needed to be able to uh, find ways to talk and show that it can, that talking is possible, (laughs) that you can have wonderful, meaningful relationships with people with whom you profoundly disagree. Mm-hmm. And just to build that out just a little bit, and if you're uncomfortable, we can cut it. But there, were, like for example, we had met a girl who was attending Brandeis, who would make a trip to a church and pray every day that abortion would end. And like this is Brandeis, um, she was would never share that opinion, uh, even though like it was obvious like that, that the commitment to that. So like every day, traveling and giving a prayer like is obviously something she really cared about and it was a part of who she was that was just completely she was not comfortable having known and that that was i guess sobering to realize when, when we learned that about her 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I feel like that happens a million times over in the country. In different yeah. different ways um, in different spaces. In both directions, for sure, depending on the space and who's there. And it's just, uh, it felt like we really needed to th- rethink how we build these spaces and, and how we allow people to be present, particularly when, when you've mentioned social media, which really counteracts that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You talked about the film being more than just through Braver Angels. As the film has rolled out across the country, what's been the response? Yeah, I would say the main response has been hope. Uh, you know, we've shown this in in front of a lot of different sorts of audiences. Um, one of the most surprising, honestly, was we did a screening in Watertown and it was like, I don't think you would ever have this kind of audience in in seats in front of a movie that touches on abortion ever, right? Like there were there were people who had been working at the clinic when it was shot up in the audience. There had been people who had been protesting outside of that clinic when it was shot up in, in that audience. Uh, and, you know, the whole past and, past and present presidents of the different organizations. Yeah. And I think everybody came away feeling energized and hopeful uh and that this was doable right like that this sort of work can be done and probably should be done uh again you know mm-hmm. um and i think that well you said there was work and we've noticed it's been said throughout the the term work right? that this is work um and i think that that often is missed uh it's really clear you see the compelling need for a lot of kinds of work uh political work uh like activism right like you can understand why you need activists. Mm-hmm. They do an important work for changing the status quo, for maybe improving laws, depending on your opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like, there's, it's a real work and you understand it, but I think oftentimes we overlook this kind of work, uh, which is also equally important. And, and the analogy that I've kind of come to as we've been sharing this film is, is pollution. Uh, like there's a lot of important things we produce that c- causes pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to produce those things, but we also need to realize that we're polluting and we, there's another kind of work that needs to be done, right? And if you're polluting, you need to be involved in the, the work that makes up for that, right? That mm-hmm. redeems that, that says, well, we need to unpollute, we need to be carbon neutral or whatever it is, right? We need, mm. we need, to, we need to invest in this kind of work. And this is the, the same thing on a political level where we've been polluting constantly and not realizing that there's this other kind of work mm-hmm. uh, what's like the opposite of pollution depollution whatever like there's a cleanup work that we need to do this rehumanization work and, and mm-hmm. leaders need to be involved in that and it needs to feel like really important because it is mm-hmm. yeah sorry one other thing just um i think there's a a sentiment that we've heard a lot like you just need to meet the other side like mm-hmm. you just need to meet people who disagree with you and that's all like that's all you need to do and that's a nice thought but i think in reality it's not so uh i think there is a lot of work um and i think this movie is a great example of just how much work it can take uh if you really want something useful to come out of that mm-hmm. and that and there are a lot of research into this actually like there are situations where in meeting people uh can work uh but it really depends on power dynamics and all sorts of things and you know it's just we have to just be really intentional about first creating spaces where diversity of opinion can exist productively instead of destructively and i I think that's one thing that the film really gets at is it's sort of uh susan is the one who talks about uh civic fusion fusion right this this idea that there are these particles Mm -hmm. that resist each other right your your 
protons and electrons, I guess. Uh, or is it the neutrons? neutrons. Protons and yeah. neutrons that would actively resist each other. Uh, but the nuclear force holds hold, holds those together, right? And uh, that's it's a great amount of energy that can be released with fusion, right? This huge, you, you realize how much energy is in is in there. Uh, and that can be really productive energy. Uh, and it can be really destructive energy. And so these differences... If if we set up situations, whether it's a business or politics or in your own homes, differences can be very productive. They can lead to create to creative solutions. They can just lead to humanizing. They can, you know, lead to all sorts of positive things. Um, even things that are hard to explain, as these women I think tried to articulate, that it changed their lives. Mm. Uh, changed like on a really fundamental level. It changed how, how they view the world and each other. Uh, but it can also be re- really destructive. So just really being intentional about about that energy that that's there. Mm-hmm. Josh, you reminded me of something, uh, which was somebody asked us. I don't know if you remember this, Fran, but somebody asked us if it wouldn't have been good to have a man in the group, and we all said absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like no man would ever be able to stay with the ground rules. Well, it just so happened that at the time, the leadership was all female. Yeah. The different sides of it just so happened to be that way. I don't think that the facilitators planned that from the beginning. I would like to just say one word about the facilitators, Laura Jason and Susan Podziba. They Mm. were extraordinary women. Laura has since passed on. Extraordinary women who really put their heart and soul into bringing us together. And other people are not going to have the benefit of that. So it's a little more difficult, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were an extraordinary pair an extraordinary partnership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Laura was the visionary and and Susan was the enforcer. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very good and effective combination. It was, yeah. I'm, and we appreciate Josh and Sarah and the work they did on this because it's like you know trying to corral a bunch of cats to get us all together and mm-hmm. and, and have us make any sense whatsoever. So we appreciate all that they did as well. Yeah. Well, and and most of all that, you know, you had you had the the idea, you had the vision um that this could be an important film. And mm-hmm. we'd had other we'd had other potential offers that always fell through. Mm-hmm. Um somebody quite early on wanted to do a film and I guess couldn't get the grant to do it. And so we uh, we didn't really think anything like this would happen. I think I, we just felt really lucky to to be able to do it and to to spend so much time. It's a weird thing when you make uh, a movie like this. You know, you interview all these people and then you spend, you know, years. <laughs> well, you spend hundreds of hours, you know, going through all the footage. And we felt so we felt like super close to all these women, you know, <laughs> and they had like seen us for a couple hours. <laughs> so it's like a weird right. so, uh, difference that you have as a filmmaker where you know, you've spent hours with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really um, meaningful project that, you know, we're still in the middle of mm-hmm. getting it out there. I, I don't know how anyone could walk away from the abortion talks and not empathize with each person in the film. I think you did a really great job of of showing that and the amount of bravery and courage that it took 
Anne and Fran and, and the rest of the women to sit down together to say we're bigger than what divides us. Going back to kind of our earlier conversation about the dial being turned up uh, today for a variety of reasons, um, you know, we're in a time, like I said, we're driven by social media and algorithms that silo us. And it feels like, are we able to connect across differences? And there are people doing the good work, like Braver Angels we've talked about in other organizations. I'd love for all of you to add your own personal perspectives to this. How do we create a more empathetic world in a time when it feels like listening and understanding the lives of others has actually decreased? Well, I think people since the beginning of time have had disagreements and they will until the end of time. My view is that you do it one person at a time um, because we're not going to have the benefit of facilitators or anything like that. But if in your own personal life, in your own personal profession, that's how you act and how you speak with people, I think it has to be person to person. You know, Tip O'Neill said, you know, all politics is local. You got to knock, knock on every door. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I feel about trying to uh, spread this way of conversing about divisive public issues. This is a little bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a advertisement, but, but Planned Parenthood has developed this really good a program of sending training volunteers and sending them to to doorstep and have doorstep conversations with people and they have it's not just like just you know will you vote for so and so or they they ha- they engage people in conversation P- it, it, people who may not agree with them in the beginning but they they find something to talk about that is depolarizing and uh, it's a, a one way of upscaling this. Mm-hmm. I, but I, I, and so I agree with Fran. And I'm, I have been having a Zoom relationship with a young, you, you, well, younger than me, a young Ukrainian woman. There's a program where you can, Ukrainians who, who want to learn English better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, finding out what her world is like is illuminating. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not necessarily that we disagree about things, but we we haven't gotten there yet. We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. I think we did touch on we did touch on abortion, actually. And I think we would disagree about that, mm-hmm. but we didn't pursue it. Yeah, for me, I think there's a few big takeaways from this film, one of them certainly is that I think the world turns on these sort of quiet conversations that are happening all over the place that you don't see. You know, I think the women involved in this conversation, many of them had very public lives, uh, but it was this quiet hidden work that had, I think, a really profound public impact. you know, even what I I was like, when we were working on this film, I was sifting through all of these old Boston Globe articles and there was an opinion piece. And the title was, has anybody's opinion changed on abortion? Maybe not, but the rhetoric has. And this was years before they took it out of the room. Um, and so I think it might feel really purposeless <laughs> to have conversations with people you profoundly disagree with or to continue you know, having humane discussions with your uncle over Thanksgiving dinner. 
but it does matter, you know, if, uh, both, I think personally in your own life, and certainly that's worthwhile, but also I think on a national level, the ability to do this work, to be dedicated to the peacemaking around it, uh, conversation by conversation, it matters a great deal. Yeah. And I, I, so from the very beginning, I was worried about scalability. Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you duplicate these conversations, right? It's, it's not really scalable. You can't get a moderator in the room with three people from each side and have go well for six years, right? Like that's not like a scalable solution to polarization. I don't, I don't think, I mean, maybe you could, but it would, it would be a, it would be a big ask. Um, but I do think there's, so, so that's something I was concerned about from the very beginning, but I do think there are two <clears throat> takeaways from this film that, that are scal scalable. One is a personal takeaway and the other uh, is, is more public. Um, on, on a personal level, it's hard to do this. Like it's hard to just even meet people you disagree with and start a conversation with something you disagree about and keep it civil and right. Like that's, there are all lots of things that can get in the way of that from happening. Uh, not the least is social media. If you're on social media, you have an audience, right? And if these women were meeting with an audience watching, like that's what they were like in the public sphere, right? Like mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't, you can't really do that. Um, and, and then you can't really control how someone else, it's hard to set rules for conversation. There's lots of things, but, but when you do have these conversations, when you find ways to ask good questions and try to understand, uh, there's a personal change that happens. You realize first that there are a huge diversity of opinions around you. Um, when you start having these conversations, you realize that even amongst the pro-choice or the pro-life movement, there's a huge amount of diversity, right? You realize that um, that these aren't dumb, whatever label you want, opinions. Like even if you really disagree and you think you have all the right reasons, they often have really intelligent, well-thought opinions too, um, with you know real reasons to believe it. Um, and so it's sort of the, the, the posture is sort of the opposite of straw manning. It's strong manning. You realize that there's actually, when you look at this position from its strongest point, there's actually something powerful to it. And that changes how you approach issues. It adds nuance as well as, you know, changes just, just your perception of the world. Then the, the public, the public, I guess, solution to this that, that I think is scalable is leadership. If this became a part of leadership that we saw leaders are actually the ones who have the power to create these spaces. And we, we made that like a leadership training. Like how do you create spaces where diversity of opinion functions productively? Let's just realize that no matter where you work, you have a diversity of opinion there. Um, and that became something that uh, you could create those spaces where people, you, you can set those rules uh, and you, you can make it so that pr diversity functions productively. And that's something leaders can do. And these were all leaders, right? So in a way, this film is about leadership. These are leaders who decided to take the time to do this and who then changed how they led in their own organizations, right? They, they made changes within their own organizations. Like Nikki says in the film that one of the most important things she learned as a leader was to understand the diversity of opinions around you. And so as a leader, you can really make a difference in this world and how, and how people interact. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of courage to do what you all did and even to the two of you, Josh and Sarah, to make the film. And I hope that everyone in the country gets an opportunity to see it. Josh Sabi and Sarah Perkins, directors of the Abortion Talks film, and Reverend Ann Fowler and attorney Fran Hogan, both members of the Abortion Talks and featured in the film. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Facing Project. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Absolutely. More about the Abortion Talks at abortiontalks.com. 
Many thanks once again to Josh Sabe, Sarah Perkins, Reverend Ann Fowler, and attorney Fran Hogan for joining me on today's show. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project, or find us on your favorite podcasting app, or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana. It's produced by the amazing producer and audio engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. I'm your host, J.R. Jameson. And until next time, I wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. <laughs>